The world is in a climate crisis, and young people are the ones who will bear the brunt of its outcomes. So what can physics offer to solve some of the problems? Hello, I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a science writer and researcher, and I'm delighted to be bringing you this third series of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. In this series, I'm asking what physics can do in the here and now to stop climate change progressing at its current rate. I'll be joined by leading physicists and engineers who explain the issues that the elements of our planet are facing. We'll be talking about how physics can be applied to identify problems, as well as how the latest research and innovations are helping to find solutions. In this episode, we'll be focusing on air. You're probably already thinking about air pollution as part of your day-to-day, particularly if you live in a city or a busy town. But actually, the problem is much bigger than you might realise. Air pollution is already responsible for 4.2 million deaths a year, and almost the entire global population is exposed to dangerous levels. And that's just the air pollution outside our homes. There's still so much work to be done in raising awareness for the pollution inside our homes too. So what can we do? And what role does physics have in mapping and solving this problem? My guests today are both working towards cleaner, healthier air for us all. Dr Suzanne Bartington is a regional clean air champion with UK Research and Innovation, which means she's constantly working to improve air quality. She's a public health clinician and an environmental epidemiologist based at the University of Birmingham, where her research interests include health outcomes, sustainable low pollution transport infrastructure and public health policy. Dr Mark Richards is an atmospheric physicist based within the Faculty of Natural Sciences at Imperial College London. His career has seen him cross from academia to industry and back again, ultimately leading to the founding of Duvas Technologies, which specialises in wireless environmental sensor networks that map real-time pollution levels. We started by clarifying what we mean when we talk about pollution. Well, it's, it's quite an interesting question because everybody has an awareness of air pollution and to some extent the impact of air pollution. Uh, but in many ways... Uh, air pollution actually has a number of different components to it, uh, some of which are chemicals, uh, specific chemicals like oxides of nitrogen and, and, and sulfur dioxide, etc., um, which we, we can detect. And then there are other types of pollutants like particulate matter, which are not specific chemicals, but they are like very, very small dust particles. And also the type and the nature of pollution both affects the, the, the impact on the type of health impacts it has, and also the source of the pollution. Um, it can also give an indication of the, the source. And so uh, pollution is very much, for want of a better phrase, a bit like a soup, a chemical soup of all sorts of things. And so often you need different techniques to measure different uh, types of pollutant. You mentioned health there, Mark. So Suzanne, let's let's turn to you and hear a little bit about that. I guess in a, in a broad overview sense, just to kick us off, what would you say are the big impacts of air pollution currently when it comes to the environment, but also humans as well? Poor air quality impacts all of our health from before birth to old age. And the two pollutants we focus on most in the UK setting are fine particulate matter. So that's those liquid particles in the air, 2.5 microns and below, and gases such as nitrogen dioxide. But it's not just the lungs that these impact upon. Fine particles that breathe deeply into the lungs, they penetrate through the alveoli, those air sacs, into the bloodstream. And that means they affect 
all of our organs in the body. So we know that long-term exposure is linked to many conditions, including cardiovascular diseases such as heart attack, stroke, lung cancer, increased risk of diabetes. There's emerging evidence there, as well as respiratory conditions such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and asthma as well. More recently, evidence shows that there are those impacts on the brain, and that includes the inhalation directly up through the nose and through the olfactory epithelium to the brain, where there are impacts on the neurons in the brain. And we know that that increases the risk of cognitive decline and dementia in later life. So there's a whole set of health impacts all the way through life. But cumulatively, it's roughly speaking a reduction of up to six months in life in life expectancy for those living in the UK due to breathing polluted air. You mentioned this idea that air inside and outside is having uh, impacts on short and long-term health outcomes. But what specifically do you mean by that? What is it that's in the air that has that direct impact on humans and and why is it growing? I mean, is it as simple as you're in a city and there's more traffic? Like, is it, tell us if it's a little bit more than that. It it is complex as an issue, as, as many of these wicked challenges are that we have. I mean, actually, air quality has improved if we look at the UK over the last, um, well, we look back to the smogs of the 1950s, for example, particulate pollution. So those solid particles, particularly associated with combustion of coal at that time, were very, very visible. And the smogs of London led to tens of thousands of extra deaths each year. But it was a very visible problem, whereas now it's less visible in that sense. It has changed. So we've we've reduced to a certain extent our particle emissions. Um, But we do have new challenges. And you mentioned urban areas and city centres. So the gases, again, that Mark mentioned early on, those oxides of nitrogen, particularly nitrogen dioxide, are particularly highly concentrated, very localised in those areas. And so we see these air quality hotspots. And we know that that has an effect on health because people are breathing those in close to source at high concentrations. Particulate matter tends to be more um, regionally dispersed in terms of the distribution of effects. But having said that, almost all of the people in the UK live in areas that exceed health-based, so World Health Organization recommendations for concentrations of particulates. And we're learning more and more all the time about the impacts that that exposure has on our health. Let's build a little bit um, deeper then about this, particularly the idea of hotspots and um, who's being impacted by this. And, and Mark, we know that there are so many factors that can affect health co- outcomes more generally, but tell us a little bit about how poor air quality affects particularly marginalised communities uniquely. If you think about the evolution of what we'll call urban air pollution. So that is pollution that is in sort of very much urban environments, um, very densely populated environments. Um, In those uh, situations, when you have, let's just say humans who want to network, it involves some sort of transport that that you've got to use. And transport leads to emissions. Emissions often... Can, when you add that with the, the sort of local climatology and, and sort of local lie of the land, so to speak, can lead to poor air quality. And it's the fact that it's the air quality and the impact on those exposure levels that lead to this, this dose response um, and adverse health effects. So ultimately, um, it's almost like as a consequence of, of sort of urbanization, 
if air quality isn't built into, let's say, the, the transport planning and infrastructure, then it's almost inevitable that you're then going to have uh, higher hotspots, as you've said, both permanent and transient hotspots. And because you've got a, a higher densely populated region, it's going to have a, a higher impact. And it's not just a, a, a social impact, it actually can lead to an economic impact in terms of, for example, the burden on the National Health Service and other uh, indirect impacts as a result of this. So to, to, to many extents, I think that, that um, air quality uh, is, is one of those things which, because you may not individually see exactly how it's affecting you personally, unless you're from a very vulnerable group, and also because you can't see it. Um, I think you mentioned earlier that the smog of 52, it was quite clear that you could see air quality. You could literally see the air you breathe. But nowadays, with things like oxides of nitrogen and even ground level ozone, for example, that can have um, harmful effects, that's the sort of invisible killer, if you like, that we have to sort of mitigate against. And that's what makes the, the air quality challenge sort of a, a different type of challenge now. Um, but fortunately, we have technology that can, can at least identify uh, what these pollutants are. Well, let's let's hear a bit about that then, Mark, because I think you've both um, made the case for for what's at stake here in, in sort of many different ways. But um, you know, let's let's hear a little bit about what what can be done about it, and specifically how physics is, is playing a role here. We've talked a little bit about hot spots, and I guess um, mapping pollution is something that um, Mark you, you think a lot about. Can you talk us through a little bit about what? technology can do in terms of helping us map pollution. I know that you specifically work with Duvast Technologies on this, um, but also tell us what is it that physics does that leads to accurate pollution tracking? So I suppose if we go back to a fundamental level, as we said, pollutants are made of different types of chemicals and particles, like, for example, methane or carbon oxide, monoxide, and oxides of nitrogen. These chemicals, uh, you can detect them using, for example, optical techniques. So in other words, you can use light, and it may not necessarily be visible light. It could be ultraviolet light or infrared light. And you can shine that through the atmosphere, and you can detect if you have a detector at the other end, so to speak, then you can compare the light you, you measure with the light that you initially, uh, if you like, sent out through the atmosphere. And then you can use that to determine which chemicals have absorbed which particular frequencies of light. And then you can also determine, quantify how much of it is there. So it's a very powerful technique. In atmospheric physics, they actually use a technique called DOAS, which is uh, differential optical absorption spectroscopy. And they use that to quantify chemical abundances uh, globally in the atmosphere, so to speak. And they use the sunlight as the source. But what we've been able to do, at least using uh, the techniques, the same techniques within atmospheric physics, we've combined them with some very robust noise reduction techniques, which were actually developed within particle physics for their large sort of collider experiments, where they're looking for these very weak signals in a very noisy background. And so we've combined that to help to maintain the same sensitivity of instrument, such that we can now measure ambient air quality on a sort of almost second by second basis. And not only that, we've been able to contain it within a unit that can be mounted on moving platforms. So now you have the ability to, to if you like, move around and measure pollution in a much more mobile sense. And this is what allows the mapping capability, especially when you can network several units together to get this aggregated data set which you can then start to interpret and, and, and use to, to represent the effects that are actually occurring in real time. Of course, mapping is is one thing, you know, being able to, well, 
see the unseen, as I suppose we were talking about earlier on. But Suzanne, you know, as a, as a health researcher, you obviously work a lot with, with models and mapping, but you also, I guess, have to think about, well, what do we do now, now that we have this knowledge and, and how do we make good impact in terms of the future of health? So how do these models, these maps, this kind of seeing the unseen when it comes to pollution, how do they help you, I guess, tell the story of effects of poor air on health, but then also ultimately lead to action to change? They're absolutely critical. I mean, a lot of what we do as uh, applied health researchers and epidemiologists is use those measures and we characterise the exposure and increasing that exposure at individual levels. So until relatively recently, we've been using much cruder, less granular models, which look at larger populations, but increasingly we want to look towards what is actually your dose of air pollution that you're receiving on a daily basis. And some of those advances, for example, in in mobile sensing technology are helping to do that. Having said that, we, we also very, very much rely upon regulatory monitoring. So the network of automatic urban and rural stations across the UK, which are managed by DEFRA, are extremely important. And part of the important link between the air quality data and the health data is firstly being able to link that exposure to the people who are receiving it. And secondly, using that then to calculate what is the likelihood of them, for example, what is the increased risk of having an asthma attack per unit increase in pollutant concentrations, so fine particulates, for example, which we know are the most harmful for health. That's particles with a a diameter of 2.5 microns or below that are inhaled deep into the lungs. So we're able to then characterise if we know that that has been either measured or modelled at a scale at which we can attribute exposure. We're then able to link that through to the health data, the likelihood of someone going to hospital for asthma, for example. And that gives us a relationship between the two. Now, that in itself is of interest to the scientific community, of course, but you asked specifically about solutions. So work that we do then turns that into a business case. So what is the cost in terms of that that healthcare cost, that quality of life cost, and increasingly that that social and wider productivity losses, for example. And so we're able to quantify that using that data. And that is very, very powerful and extremely useful decision makers when you're making a business case for mitigation measures. I think Suzanne touched on a, an important point that uh, they make use of the, the regulated air quality monitoring network. And so, it, for example, so if you develop a new piece of technology that could really uh, be effective in air quality and monitoring, for example, it's not one of those products that are driven by market forces where, you know, you, you sell it at a price and, and there's a demand for it. It has to be regulated. So there is a slight, um, uh, there's still more, let's say, a sense of cohesion that needs to happen because regulation is effectively based on best available technology. And so what you sometimes find is that the technology may be way ahead of what the legislation says local authorities are mandated to do. And we want we need to find a way of shortening that gap between the best available technology and the respective legislation that can then mandate those who are tasked with helping to prevent the impact or limit the impact of, of air quality on being able to to then find you know the, the resources to then use that technology to complement and build upon what we already have. And I think that's probably somewhere within sort of the legislation 
that it's not necessarily the scientists who can com completely you know, write legislation. It's really the policymakers, i.e. the politicians. Uh, and you know, there are not huge numbers of scientists who are politicians. So you've got to find a way of convincing them uh, in order to make legislation robust enough to, to have that, that impact. Yeah, so it definitely sounds like it's a really, um, I guess, impactful mode of communication of showing how bad problems are. We'd love to hear a little bit about um, the impacts of the pandemic, because this is something that we, I mean, climate change in general was a big discussion point around, um, you know, on Twitter during the pandemic, all the animals are returning to the cities and all that because the humans had, had left um, or were in, indoors. And the same sort of discussion was specifically around air, particularly around there being less cars driving around, less planes in the air and so on and so forth. Um, it, what's the reality of that? Is that true that there's been huge changes in the way that our air is made up as a result of these these recent two years of the pandemic as it had long-term effects? Um, Mark, tell us a little bit about some of this recent mapping of air. Well, I think um, in the early stages of the pandemic, when there was almost a total lockdown worldwide, there was almost visible indicators that air quality was improving and, and just pollution generally. So, you know, you had, you know, images in Venice and so on where you saw the waters becoming cleaner and lots of cities where the skyline became much, much brighter and so on. But in reality, uh, it probably was a temporary um, situation because it almost came back with a vengeance once more traffic, it almost feels like, has now been on the roads and, and so everything sort of opened up again. So I don't, I think if anything, the lesson we've learned is that if there was any doubt that human activity impacts on the actual environment that we exist in, uh, then that would have probably been a, a good stark example. So if we do have issues like urban air pollution, it is for, if you like, humans, it's not something that's going to naturally correct itself. We have to uh, collectively come up with the policies and the, and, and the, the strategies to actually uh, mitigate against it because effectively we are the cause of it. But we have really great um, ways of showing that there are, there's a big problem and that there are issues um, that should be very obvious to anybody, regardless of how expert you are in in air pollution. And yet we still we still have problems. So let's talk a little bit about what needs done. And um, Suzanne, you know, let's talk a little bit. You're clean air champion, so you're looking for ways to help communities breathe cleaner air. As as simple uh, as that may sound. What would some of the practical measures be that can be taken in the here and now? And perhaps let's start with some of the big policy measures. I mean, obviously, those are the things that are going to have to have the biggest impacts. What what needs done? A lot of the focus has been in recent years on, on transport. And we're actually trying very hard to move that dialogue a lot more broadly than transport. And something we actually saw during, you mentioned lockdown, was that we found that actually the reduction, for example, in, in nitrogen dioxide was much less than you would expect for the volume of traffic that was reduced on our roads. And that really shows the other sources. And also, we didn't really see a reduction in particulates, which are most harmful for health. So I think, firstly, moving the policy dialogue beyond transport, which is beginning to happen. So we need to be looking at things like domestic wood burning, for example, domestic heating, and agriculture, another major source of emissions, which, again, is um, historically anyway, from a policy perspective, hasn't been the direct focus of those clean air actions. 
But fundamentally, I mean, air quality really needs to be considered as a risk to health. So again, it's only relatively recently that it has been given that exposure and that status as a health risk. And much of that is because the really tragic death of Ella Adukissi Deborah, a young girl who lived in the South Circular in London and died from very severe asthma following repeated hospital admissions. And since that time and the coroner's inquest into her death, there's really been something of a, a turnaround in terms of the way in which the health sector views air quality. So I would like to see it wholly integrated as a, could be considered as a, a risk to health and then policies enacted on that basis. Are there any sort of specific uh, policies or changes? And I can imagine there'll be lots of them, but what I mean by specific policy changes that could have impact, I'm thinking, for instance, when um, there was the hole in the ozone layer and it was to do with the aerosols, right? And it was arguably such a very simple change, right? Just don't make these aerosols like that and use a different form of them, which we already have. We already know how to do, create legislation, Obviously, I'm oversimplifying. It was a big project, but it but it happened and it worked, and and the policy got through. And I think one of the big, um, you know, sometimes people say, well, why can't we do that? But for climate change, and it's well, it's because the specificity is not necessarily there, and the solution is not necessarily there. And I wondered if there were some examples within the air pollution um, space that. I don't want to say simple fixes, but small fixes um, that could happen if we could just get the policy through, if we could just get the legislation through. Suzanne, we'll start with you. I mean, there's some very clear ones there. But what's important with air quality are these these trade-offs. And and of course, any of these policies has other trade-offs. We need to avoid negative or unintended consequences. So if we take diesel fuel, for example, which was promoted in the early 2000s, actually as a carbon mitigation measure, essentially, um, for reduced CO2 emissions. That led us into one of those nitrogen dioxide hotspot problems that we're still grappling with now in urban areas. So very, very clear policy, of course, would be advancing the phase out of, of petrol and diesel vehicles. Now, that's not without its own consequences. If we switch to electric vehicles, there's also the concern that people will drive further and that that might substitute other more active forms of travel as well as as those vehicles become or becomes cheaper at the point of use essentially so identifying those unintended consequences and taking a holistic approach is really important i mean cutting out short vehicle journeys if we're looking at the transport sector has the potential for major gains both, both for physical activity for health and for air quality. And um, that would be a very, very clear action that could be taken. I mentioned domestic wood burning as well, a portion of which is for aesthetic reasons. Uh, in the clean air strategy, it's roughly 38% of particulate emissions were attributed to domestic wood burning. Obviously, that varies very much by place and data is sparse. But if a, a government were committed, that is another area that a very direct policy action could be taken. And also, I mentioned agriculture as well. Um, again, you could have a very, very targeted policy there, um, which would reap rewards with terms of air quality, but you're always going to have some trade-offs, of course. Mark, I want to bring you in uh, here as well in terms of the the big policy measures that, that could be done and should be done, or perhaps what you would do if you were in the position of being able to to make these changes. I can certainly concur with with 
those those suggestions uh, uh, which Suzanne had uh, mentioned, they're all very valid and could potentially be extremely effective. Uh, but underpinned by that, I'm almost bound to say this, but it should be underpinned by measurement because that's the only way you're really going to validate how effective these policies are. And so I think if there was more of a drive towards more measurement, more data, basically, more data so that we understand the dynamics more so that we can actually make, and I mean more real-time data as well, so that you can actually make decisions in real time, like, for example, rerouting traffic if hotspots become above a, a certain threshold, for example. But in order to do that, you'd have to be thinking quite innovatively about how you would instrument a city and how you would actually connect it data-wise in, in that way. And I think we have the technology to do that, underpinning it. It's all there in its various disciplines. And if we were to draw a, a quick analogy with maybe the pandemic, one of the, the, the tools, if you like, which has, has been sort of heralded as helping to, to, to control, manage the pandemic was actually lots of testing at, at a particular period in time. Lots and lots of testing and making almost real-time decisions as a result of the data coming in. Well, in a similar kind of vein, if we did that with air quality, not only would we understand more, but we would also limit those most vulnerable because ultimately individuals want to know what is the quality of the air they are breathing. And we breathe in every few seconds, not on an average of a 24 hours or a month or a year. And also we want to know what the pollution is like in our exact local environment, as opposed to, let's say, a, a global aggregated model over a region, which might give an indication, but it doesn't say specifically you personally, what, what, what's, how that affects you. So that would be my, my, my take, a, more, a push for more, more measurement and more data and being more intelligent about policies after, you know, on the top of that. You do have to pair that, as you've both said, with a willing government or a willing policymaker and a willing populace to want to take action off the back of, of numbers, right? And, and a lot of that has to come from understanding the impact. There is a real shift in the clean air research community towards solutions. So it's certainly acknowledged that we've spent, a, as a community anyway, spent a long time measuring and obtaining numbers about these problems and, and, and advancing our models, as we've already talked about. But actually taking that and translating it into action and solutions focus is really, really important if we're going to make change. So there's actually a bit of a counter argument here that we've spent too much time measuring and modeling and actually not enough time on developing solutions. But of course, the, the former is, is relevant to the latter. But I think just to add to that, the reason we have the, the UKRI Strategic Priorities Fund Clean Air Programme is really to ensure that research is coordinated with government action. So one of my roles as UK, one of the UK clean air champions, is to ensure that the outputs from that research, such as the models and the metrics, uh, are translated actually to policymakers in a meaningful way that they can understand and therefore use to enact solutions. Because you're right, the data alone isn't going to solve the problem. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive. We can only measure or or act, right? I think it's it comes to that point of willingness. I want to um, hone in a little bit on the individual, though, as well, because again, this is this is a, I mean, this is a difficult debate within climate change more generally, but in many areas of life where it's saying you know you don't want to put the onus on the individual or say that it's you know do your recycling and climate change will fix. No, there's huge, massive policy and and corporate changes that need to happen as well. But specifically when it comes to air pollution, 
what are some things people can do to make things better more generally, but also to protect themselves? Um, specifically, when we're thinking about these these health consequences, I can imagine a lot of people would want to know what they can do, even if it is arguably a more selfish act than, than recycling. Let's start with you, Suzanne. I mentioned with transport, substituting and switching those shorter journeys, particularly when we're thinking about nitrogen dioxide from fossil fueled vehicles in uh, densely populated urban areas. That's a very direct action that people can take, which we know will benefit their health and the health of others as well. Also, there are actions that can be taken to reduce exposure. So the ultimate is to reduce that source emissions, but people can also reduce their exposure. So, for example, choosing quieter routes to walk to school or work or for leisure, even just taking a few metres away from roadside. Nitrogen dioxide is very highly localised, um, so it won't protect you completely. But just walking, for example, the side of the pavement away from the road, you're going to have a, a lower exposure than you do directly. At, at roadside. Other actions, are particularly for those with, with existing health conditions, so those with lung disease, um, asthma, there is a, a daily air quality index, um, which essentially communicates that information about air pollutant episodes, particularly high PM or if we have an ozone episode, um, and measures they can take include reducing their activities on those days. Now, ideally, we'd want those emitting to reduce their activities on those days, of course, but that's that takes a whole sort of shift towards those types of actions. But being people being able to protect their own exposure is is really, really important. And also measures to take within the home. So for example, we know that candles will emit particulates, plug-in air fresheners um, will emit VOC. So there are actions that people can take within their own homes as well, which uh, is obviously under their own control. To, a certain, to the greatest extent anyway. As an individual, it's also still uh, important for your voice to be heard and where you can raise public concern, either to your local MP or any, any person in position of, of, of authority to be able to or make decisions, then I think you should make your voice heard because ultimately air pollution is something which really isn't really acted upon unless, it's, unless we're mandated to do it. And then the other thing, probably not as an individual, but certainly when it comes to things like town planning, uh, property development, and those sorts of areas, then I think even just having a mindset in terms of what, how is that going to impact on air quality, both short-term and long-term, and actually factoring that into the planning will help to mitigate, uh, hopefully, in, in the long run. Clean air by design, if you will. Absolutely, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, we've had this across all the episodes, but I think what you've brought um, in terms of saying, look, we have a problem, it's really obvious and here are some solutions. Um, take something that's super complex, but it, it's a sort of obvious answer as to what we need to do moving forward is, is really make those changes. Mark? Just building on the fact that air quality, as with many things, our global challenges is the fact that by increasing the diverse nature of science and diverse inputs will, will put us in a better chance to actually solve these problems. And I just think that's an important message that everybody um, regardless of uh, background, should get in, you know, should and can get involved. I'd just also like to add that I think we also now have, because air quality is a global challenge, although we've been focusing maybe on the UK, but it's a global challenge, as we all know, um, having something like the UN Sustainable Development Goals as an umbrella, generally, for tackling a lot of these global challenges, it also helps to put even research into context, because 
as far as I'm concerned, if you if your research cannot at least address some aspect of the sustainable development goals, you would beg the question: what what's you know not quite what's the what's the purpose? But um, I just think it, it it gives a framework with which to discuss some of the complex areas that are happening. But at least at a, at a at a higher level, you can should be able to explain it even to a non-specialist to say, well, in this context my research is contributing in this area. And I think that's a, a really good framework moving forward because often, you know, science and society, sometimes what they do get lost in translation simply because of the complexity in trying to translate that. I couldn't agree more, Mark. Although it does sound that you do love a measure, you love a framework. So <laughs> it's good to know as well. But you're right. I think that it is. It's, it's, it's not just the complexity of the problem. It's the complexity of, uh, in terms of, I mean, fixing it through science. It's also through... Um, explaining it. Getting people on board, explaining it, behaviour change, um, belief. There, There's so much more tradition. There's so much more to um, to actually trying to solve these. Um, I'm going to steal your, your name again, Suzanne, these wicked problems. But it's been absolutely brilliant to have you both join us and uh, expose not hot air just normal regular lovely air about all things air thank you so much for joining us on the show thank you thank you it's a pleasure huge thanks to my guests Dr Suzanne Bartington and Dr Mark Richards for joining me for this episode we'll be back next time with our final episode of Looking Glass where I'll be in conversation with the Deputy Chief Executive of the Institute of Physics Rachel Youngman We'll be reflecting back on all three series of Looking Glass, asking how physicists, along with experts from other disciplines, are responding to the world's biggest challenges. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss it. Looking Glass is a Chalk and Blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producers are Fatuma Kera and Rosie Stouffer, with editorial guidance from Sarah Stolarz. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. The original music is by Alex Portfelix, with mixing by Nassan Da Silva. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan, and the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from more diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless.